are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi everybody, David Guzik here, and uh, I'm speaking to you from a hotel room in Brazil. Uh, we're in the city of Santos. Uh, and we're at a very nice hotel room about a block away from the beach. We enjoyed a lovely walk to the beach this morning uh, until it started to rain. It is kind of the rainy season here. And uh, so our walk was a little bit cut short. But we've been here on a trip where for the first two days, we've done a lot of dental work. We've done a two-day dental clinic, which uh, my wife, Ingalil, has been a part of these uh, missionary dental clinics now for... Good heavens, it's been more than 20 years she's been doing these works. And believe it or not, this is the very first time that I've ever been a participant in the actual clinic. Now, I'd like to think that I've been a part of the clinics before through prayer, through support, through encouragement, but I've never actually taken part and been part of the dental team in one of these clinics until now. And what a great experience it was. I have to say it was stretching, but it was really good. We just had a wonderful time uh, together, and we saw... Well, more than 50 patients did a lot of uh, fillings, a lot of sealings, a lot of cleanings, and a good amount of extractions as well. And so, wow, what a great time it was. And it raised um, my respect and estimation for my my wife, Ingalil, does in these works to an even higher level. It was just uh, wonderful to be part of that. So, uh, even though we are live from Brazil right now, I thought that we could take some questions and answers I'll tell you a little bit more about what I'm doing here in this particular time. Uh, we have come not really specifically to do the dental clinic. The dental clinic was a very blessed add-on to what we're doing. But for many years, I've had a wonderful relationship with a Calvary Chapel pastor here in Brazil. His church is in the city of Sao Vicente, uh, kind of the local dialect. They kind of say more Sao Vicente. And here in this area of Sao Vicente, uh, they have a church that's been going for a long time. Originally, the church was started by an American missionary named Tim Rogers. And Tim Rogers trained up a young man uh, named Celso Nascimento. And Pastor Celto, Celso was raised up here as part of the ministry. And he uh, took over the church from Pastor Tim many years ago. I got to know Pastor Celso because he came to our Bible college in Germany now at least 15 years ago and so uh it was a wonderful time to have Celso at our bible college and when he was there joining us we just developed this wonderful relationship uh, this is my second time being here the last time was we're figuring it was about 2010 was when i was here the last time and uh had a wonderful time there they have a church conference retreat here uh, where several other Calvary chapels will be joining them, the pastors, some of the people there, but it's also just for the people in the church, where during this time of carnival here in Brazil, the Christians, at least in these churches, they like to get away for a retreat time to seek the Lord, to get out of the city, to have it be a time of blessing. And so I'm going to be teaching as part of this retreat. And so uh, very happy to be a part of this here. Very happy to reconnect with our friend Celso, his wife Tatiana, to see their little girl Rebecca. And then, of course, we've also been able to connect 
with another guy that was part of our lives back in Germany and over here in Joseph, a man named Christoph Engel and his wife Kelly, who happens to be Christoph's sister, and we spent some time with them and their little boy um, named Oliver. So uh, it was a wonderful time there, uh, just getting to connect with these pastors again, and I'm very happy because it just worked out schedule time for me to do another one of these live Q&As. So here's just kind of the routine. If you've got a question, if you've got a comment, go ahead and type it in the chat window. Uh, I'll get to it. And uh, I'm looking forward to now. I, I do want to say that next week, I don't know if I'm going to be able to join us next week because it's a day that we're going to be traveling. And it all determines as to when I get back into Santa Barbara. If it's possible for me to do the live Q&A, I certainly will. Uh, but I kind of won't know until that morning, actually, whether or not I'll be able to. So one way or another, I hope you can either join us on the next time we do it, whether that happens to be next Thursday or beyond. Uh, I see right now Ruth Gordon. Um, blessings to you, Ruth. I know how much you love Brazil and how much this country has been a part of your life. Uh, let me tell you, it's a blessing for us to be here. Uh, the Brazilian people have something very special about them. And, of course, like people everywhere, they need Jesus. The Brazilian people need Jesus. But I could say that about every group of people. The American people need Jesus. The Russian people need Jesus. The Swedish people need Jesus. The Chinese people need Jesus. I could just keep going on and on and on. Uh, one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible to me about the world and their need for Jesus is this wonderful reminder, we see it in John chapter 4, where it said that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. I love that idea. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Uh, not just for Western cultures, uh, because the gospel didn't even come to the West at first. The, the gospel came from the East, from what we would call the Near East or the Middle East. Um, and so it's certainly not just for Western cultures. It's certainly not just for... Uh, affluent cultures or English-speaking cultures. I love that verse that says, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And uh, so we come to Brazil, but i got to say, that there is something delightful, something wonderful about the Brazilian people. And uh, it's a blessing to be here. Uh, I know my wife, Ingalil, has joined the time a great deal as well. It's a wonderful thing for us to join, both for the dental clinic for the time of fellowship and encouragement with the pastors, and then now tomorrow we start the retreat that they have during carnival season. Uh, Bianca, greetings back to you in Denmark. Ruth um, yes, indeed, it is good, indeed. Uh, thank you for the blessings in the thing. And uh, Brian asks a question. Brian asks this question. Let me read you his question. He says, what are some ideas for keeping a context flow in a Bible study and teachings? Now, Brian, this is a very important question because um, when we teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, it is important to us to keep the entire context of the book in mind. You know, there's sort of the immediate context of a chapter and verse, and then there's the larger context of who the letter was written to, the general purpose for the letter, the circumstances of the people to whom the letter was originally written, or the gospel, or the book of Acts, or whatever it is that was particularly being written. There's a lot to keep in mind with context. And when we teach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, 
especially when we teach through it slowly, a verse at a time, a couple of verses at a time, you know, five or six verses at a time. It can take us a long time to get through one of the Gospels, one of Paul's letters, something from the Old Testament. And it's very easy to lose the broader context when we go through a book slowly. Now, on the other hand, and I'll just say this as a preacher, Brian, you understand that we don't want to spend, I don't know what we would say, you know, 10 minutes at the beginning of every message setting the context. It feels like we're taking precious time that we have. And by the way, time is a preacher's resource that should not be wasted. You know, people often ask me, how long should a preacher preach or should a sermon preach? And I, I say that that differs. It differs according to the people that you're preaching to. It differs according to what they're accustomed to. Whenever I guest speak, one of the common questions I ask the pastor or whoever it is that's coordinating is, how long does the pastor or the preacher normally speak for at this church or Bible study or whatever it is? Because I, I want to know what their expectation is. But whatever resource we have of the people's time there, we want to make the best of that resource. And to feel like we're spending 10 minutes every teaching uh, setting the context from the previous weeks, it, I wouldn't say that it's wasting the time, but it kind of feels like it in a way. So, Brian, th this is what I would say. Brian, it's important to work hard and find the right words to efficiently set the context for each message. I, I would almost make it like a two-minute drill. I'm going to set the context of this passage within the larger passage of the book of the Bible, maybe the larger passage in the context of the Bible as a whole. But I'm going to really work hard to give myself up to two minutes to set the context. Now, I'm not saying that if you can do it in a shorter time than two minutes, all the better. But try to say, I'm not going to give it more than two minutes. It's your two-minute drill to start your message. I'm going to set the context. Now, I know this is a lot of work. To say something that is captivating, interesting, engaging, yet accurate about setting context, it takes work. But this is part of the work of preaching and teaching Bible studies. So I would say this. Um, work hard at it. Give yourself a two-minute drill. Again, not more than two minutes. It can certainly be less than that really to work through this idea of what is the context of this passage. And it's an important and helpful thing to do. You want somebody, you need to appeal to both groups. You need to be able to speak to people who have just parachuted down into the middle of your Bible study and be able to speak to them as if that's the only teaching in this series that you hear. And it needs to make sense to them. But it also needs to make sense as it would build week after week to the people who will be with you throughout the series or Bible study or journey through that book of the Bible. So, Brian, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, next one is from Jim. Jim asked this question. David, what do you think about churches with multiple church campuses where you watch the pastor on a screen? I see now lots are not even the pastor of the home church, but have a campus pastor. Uh, Jim, that's a great question, and really what you're asking about is the phenomenon that sometimes people call the satellite campus approach. And the satellite campus approach uh, is basically this, where um, there is a main church where the pastor preaches. Now, it's interesting. I've seen this 
carried out in different ways. Sometimes the pastor will go around to different sites or venues, but there's some venue where the pastor is live and at the other venues, he is out by video. And again, there's all different ways that churches do this. Sometimes they'll do it where the pastor does the live message on Saturday night or sometimes even earlier in the week. And then it's distributed to the different venues or sites through the week. But the bottom line is this. The main teaching is done up on a video screen and the actual um, people there, perhaps their worship time, congregational singing is led by some kind of live group at the moment, but their actual, <coughs> excuse me for that cough, their actual uh, preaching happens on video and their pastoral care and kind of interaction with the pastoral team, that happens on site. Let me just put it to you this way. I have mixed feelings about that approach. And some of my mixed feelings are kind of pragmatic pragmatic, I would say, in nature. I want to know, how does this work? Um, there's nothing, I think, inherently wrong with bringing a teaching over video. I mean, after all, that's what I'm doing right now, am I not? I'm bringing a teaching over video. I don't think there's something inherently wrong about it. I would want to know how effective is that church at doing the work of making disciples. Again, the purpose of the church is not merely to attract a crowd. The purpose of the church is to worship God and to make disciples. And if those things can effectively be done at a video venue, then I'm more open to it. Now, even with that work being effectively done at a video venue, there's two other cautions that I have. And again, I don't regard these as absolute deal breakers, but I, I regard them as significant cautions. The first significant caution is this. Is that church still able to raise up men who are skilled in handling the word of God and teaching the word of God? You see, in a previous generation, before we had our present technology, for the most part, when churches would be planted out in different areas, different people would go out, different men would go out to pastor those works. And these were men who would be equipped and trained to do that work. Are there still men being equipped and trained to do the work of pastoring, preaching, and teaching uh, on a congregational level? Out there? So that's my first concern, is are men still being trained for pastoral ministry and all that entails, including doing the pastoral work? And there's a second aspect that I would say. As I would say that there is an indefinable work of the Holy Spirit that happens when the Preacher is present with the people. Now, again, I'm not saying that there is no work of the Holy Spirit present when the preacher is available over a video screen. I believe that can work. I believe God can use it. I've seen God use it. But I believe that there is an additional, indefinable aspect that takes place when the preacher is present. And I think in an ideal world, that is present in the preaching and teaching work. So, again, I don't want to exclude or condemn the idea of the video campus or the, the satellite campus. In some ways, honestly speaking, I think it's too early to tell. I, I think we're going to need maybe another 5, 10, 15 years to evaluate the long-term effectiveness of this to see whether or not it is something effective in worshiping God 
in making disciples, in raising up a new generation of men who can be effective preachers and teachers in other places, uh, and, and whether or not the indefinable aspect of the preacher's presence, if not having that, is something that should be a deal breaker. So for me, the jury, the judgment is still somewhat out on this, um, but I do have some concerns regarding it. At the same time, I have seen it, I think, be effective at least for a season in certain aspects. So, Jim, that's a long answer to your question, but I hope it's helpful for you. Next question here comes from Joel. Um, book recommendation sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus flow throws great light on context. Uh, thank you for that, Joel. Joel's recommending this book sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus talking about context. And listen, something that is helpful when it comes to context is getting the historical context. Although I will caution this. Sometimes we take things from history and we regard them as absolutes. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, um, okay, we can know what the normal wedding practices were in the Jewish world of the first century, of the time of Jesus and the apostles. However, we realize that even as it is today, we can say to somebody what normal wedding practices are today, but we may not be able to say that every wedding exactly follows those practices. And sometimes we carry out the idea of knowing what was normal practice in the ancient world, and we don't give ourselves the credit for realizing that sometimes there's departure from the normal. Uh, and so it's great to know what normal practices were in the ancient world, both in the Jewish world and in the Greek and Roman world, and then even going back further into Old Testament times as well. But we have to remember that just like in our day-to-day, we have normal practices and then we have things that happen that are just sort of irregular or out of the normal in some way. Uh, Bianca says, hi, I'm a newborn Christian. Welcome to the family, Bianca. And sometimes I feel a little nervous about prayer. Am I doing it right? Can I do it wrong? Does God hear me? Can I talk to him like I do any other? Well, Bianca, I would answer the question. First of all, again, welcome to God's family. I'm, I'm wonderful that you're a newborn Christian. And I pray that God continues to bless his relationship with you and your relationship with him, that it's something that just becomes stronger and better and, and just closer in the way that any good relationship should. And Bianca, I would answer the question like this, is that, Yes, you can talk to God as you would any other, but any other person that you love a great deal and respect a great deal. Um, God has this wonderful and sometimes curious relationship with his people that we are dear to him and he wants us to regard him as dear to us. We can come to him as daddy, as papa, in that very endearing way, the way that the Bible uses it is Abba, Father. Again, that's the very endearing way that a child would speak to a father. At the same time, we know that God is holy. And we have a, a, a reverence to God that sometimes is known as the fear of the Lord. And listen, I think that there are certain times in our walk with God where God may perhaps want us to have more of a focus on the reverence. There may be other times in our walk with God where God has us more of a focus on the um, 
closeness of our relationship with him. Uh, Sometimes it's more in a reverent way, Lord God. Other times it's in a more personal way uh, to say, Daddy, Papa, Abba, Father. So yes, Bianca, you can speak to God. And I find that our habit in prayer as Christians, as we um, grow in the Lord, often, I won't say always, but often our habit in prayer as Christians is to become more formal and maybe kind of artificial in our communication with God. Whatever you can do to keep your communication with God fresh and real and personal, I think those are wonderful things, as long as we keep it reverent and respectful at the same time. So, Bianca, bless you. I pray that God would really bless your own prayer time with him. All right, next, uh, Horacio says, hi, David, greetings from Lima, Peru. Well, we're in the same continent, Horacio. Uh, I have another question for today. In Luke chapter 2, verses 48 through 52, is Jesus disobedient for staying at the temple three days without asking for permission to his parents? Well, Horacio, that's a very interesting question. Again, we're taking a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, where at the end of the chapter, it describes this wonderful experience where Jesus went to Jerusalem with his parents uh, at feast time. And instead of coming home with the whole caravan, uh, Jesus stayed behind to talk theology, to talk about the scriptures with the uh, rabbis, the leading rabbis of the day. And they were astounded at his wisdom and knowledge of the scriptures even as Jesus was at a young age, 12 years of age, and doing that. Now, uh, Jesus, I would say, first of all, was not disobedient to his parents. And I'll tell you why. It was because we know that Jesus was the sinless son of God. And the scriptures never tell us directly that Jesus was disobedient in this situation. So we shouldn't assume that he was unless the scriptures were to specifically tell us that he was disobedient. But because Jesus was the spotless, sinless son of God, we know that he wasn't disobedient. Now, let me say one other reason, too. Understand this. The Bible does tell us that we should submit to our parents. This is one of many different orders of authority that God says that we should submit to. God says that we should submit to the civil government. God says that we should submit to our church leaders. God tells us that we should submit in our families. And there's a family structure of submission. Uh, both in parents and within the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. But let me say this. Any human uh, relationship of submission that the Bible may speak about is always overruled by our submission to God. Therefore, our first responsibility is to submit to God. And uh, if there is a choice between obeying God and submitting to man on any human level of submission, we should always submit to God first. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, remember what Jesus said when he was questioned, Jesus, why did you stay behind? This is what he said. He said, didn't you know that I had to be about my father's business? In other words, God the Father specifically, and because this was Jesus, perfectly directed Jesus This is what I want you to do. And Jesus was obligated to obey his father in heaven even before he obeyed his earthly parents. But just remember that that's an important principle of submission to relate to that our first submission is always to God. 
And when the choices obeying God or obeying man, our answer is always to obey God first. And that's what Jesus was doing in that situation. So I hope that helps you, Horacio. Next question. Uh, Steve writes, greetings from New York City, David. I just think this is wonderful. we got people from Denmark, people from Peru. Uh, I'm in Brazil. Steve writes from New York City. What a wonderful thing. Okay, greetings from New York City, David. May the Lord continue to richly bless you in your important ministries. Your verse-by-verse study guides are just amazing. Well, that wasn't a question, but I don't mind reading that. Steve, uh, very happy to hear that the Bible studies have been helpful for you. Uh, next up, Yuku412. Uh, David, I was just wondering why most teachers are not teaching about the end times, sin, etc., but it's all about blessings and favor, etc., which is not wrong in itself, though. Thank you. Well, let me answer that question. There are churches that are focused on what we might call, well, the old way we would say it, at least in our English vocabularies, we would say that they are focused on health and wealth. And they would believe that it's always God's will for every believer at all times to be in perfect health. And it's always God's will for every believer to uh, be uh, wealthy, financially blessed to the point of wealth or riches. Now, this health and wealth gospel, or sometimes it's called the prosperity gospel, has a lot that's wrong with it. But let me tell you one of the things that especially is wrong with it. It's not just what it teaches, but it's what it doesn't teach. And God uses adversity, And God uses suffering in the life of the believer. And sometimes, we're not going to say all the time, sometimes that suffering comes through an illness or through some financial difficulty or whatever. And sometimes uh, a teaching can be wrong, not just for what it teaches, but for what it doesn't teach, or maybe I should say for what it never teaches. Now, let me give you kind of a pet peeve that I have. I think that it's wrong to criticize a single sermon for what it doesn't say. Uh, I won't say that's never wrong to criticize a single sermon for what it doesn't say, but often it is. I mean, nobody can say everything in one message. And, and so if I'm teaching on something and somebody says, well, David, you said A, B, and C, but you didn't say D, you say, well, look, I, I don't have time to talk about everything, but... I'm not trying to talk about a single sermon. I'm talking about if a ministry as a whole never deals with the issue of suffering in the Christian life, if they never deal with the idea of God working in the life of believers through trials and challenges and all the rest, uh, how sometimes God's work in our life is to deliver us from a trial. Praise God for that. But sometimes God's deliverance in our life is to deliver us in the midst of the trial and to help us endure through it. Uh, how this is biblical teaching as well. And so, yes, it can be attractive to act as if God's will in our life is always simply to deliver us out of difficulty or pain and suffering, but sometimes his will is to deliver us by enduring through it. So I hope that's helpful for you. Stephen writes, and he says, David, Did you ever struggle going back and forth from sermon notes and addressing the congregation conversationally? What are some tips to not come off as if you are reading a manuscript while teaching? All right, Stephen, let me talk about that. And this has to do with sermon presentation. 
I think that there's two big aspects to preaching and teaching. Uh, the first aspect is preparation, but then the second aspect is presentation. And, of course, preparation is really important. But presentation is also important. It's possible to have a very well-prepared sermon that, or Bible study, whatever you want to call it. It's possible to prepare it well, but then to present it so poorly that the well-prepared message doesn't get across. Well, first of all, I would say this. The, the key to good presentation is, number one, number one, good preparation. If you are well-prepared, you're going to do a much better job in your presentation. That's number one. But then number two, I think that we have to intentionally work at getting better at our presentation. So there was a time in my ministry where very regularly, now I'll do this occasionally sometimes, but not regularly, but regularly where I would preach the sermon to an empty sanctuary uh, on Saturday night before Sunday morning. Because I found this, I found we were doing two services at that time at the church where I pastored. We were doing two services, and I found, you know, the second sermon was always, at least in my estimation, better than the first one. Because I always run through the material once. I, I kind of had a run-through first. I said, oh, why don't I do the run-through on Saturday night to an empty room? And so I did that for some period of time. Uh, Stephen, that might be something that's helpful for you, to, to preach it to an empty room first. Now, again, occasionally I'll still do that. I don't do that as a regular practice, but sometimes it's very helpful. Uh, so that might be of help to you. The other thing is I found in my preaching that um, what I wanted to do is give myself more time for spontaneity. Look, sometimes in our preaching ministry, we need to have less spontaneity and stick to our notes better. Other times, I think in preaching, we need to allow ourselves more spontaneity. So what I started doing was preparing less. Now, not less time. Actually, it might take me more time to prepare less material that I take in with me. So just to give an example, instead of six pages of notes, maybe I would prepare five pages of notes and make myself stick to five pages, get that message down to five pages of notes so that I would have more time for spontaneity. It's just a matter of sort of listening to the congregation, uh, getting their feedback as you preach, more importantly, listening to the Lord and listening to trusted people to help you evaluate your preaching. Oftentimes, first and foremost, that's your wife whom you respect. But using that feedback to say, is this a season for me to have more spontaneity or less spontaneity? And, and adjusting your sermon preparation and presentation according to that. I hope that's helpful for you, Stephen. Um, Lucia says, I use Abba when I pray. Well, Lucia, I want you to know that God gives us the right, the ability to come and to call him Daddy, Abba, Father. And again, as long as we do it reverently, which I believe it's entirely possible to do, to keep that reverence, just as a, a child loves and respects their father, but yet still has that personal, deep relationship where they say, Abba, I think that's very wonderful and possible. Uh, Joel says, what are your thoughts on the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing in the Old Testament? the angel of the Lord, would that be an angel or Jesus? Okay, Joel, that's a great question. You say, what are your thoughts? I'm going to repeat it again just for the people here. 
What are your thoughts on the pre-incarnate Jesus appearing in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord? Would that be a mere angel or Jesus? I would say this. Most of the time in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord appear, I believe it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Why? Because when you look at many of those appearances, I'm thinking in the book of Judges, I'm thinking in the book of Genesis, just right off the top of my head, we could find other ones. But you will have people report that after that experiences that they have seen the face of God. Now, if God appears in some kind of human form before Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem, before the incarnation, then we regard it as what we use as a fancy word, the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's sort of a preview. That Jesus, now, why don't we believe that it's God the Father appearing in human form? Because the Bible says that no one has seen God, and in context we take it as God the Father, no one has seen God the Father at any time. No one has seen God the Father. And, and, the Holy Spirit by very definition cannot be seen because he's a spirit. Therefore, as God is present as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if no one has seen the Father at any time, and the Holy Spirit cannot be seen, then it leaves us with the idea that the God, the Son, can be seen. And if God is made visible in the Old Testament, as he seems to be pretty clearly in several situations, that this is a preview, so to speak, appearance of Jesus before the incarnation. So I believe, Joel, that those are appearances of Jesus before his coming as a baby in Bethlehem. Lucia says, hello from Spain, David. According to what you said, then how do we know if someone is a good teacher? What should we look for? Well, you want to look for someone who presents in some way or another what we would call the whole counsel of God. They just don't present one aspect of God's truth, but they have a way of presenting all of God's truth. Now, a, a easier way to present the whole counsel of God is to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible and the Bible books eventually as a whole. Now, that's not the only way to teach the whole counsel of God. It's possible to teach the whole counsel of God and not necessarily teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. But it's easy to teach the whole counsel of God. Well, it's easier to teach the whole counsel of God if we go verse by verse through books of the Bible because then we're teaching God's word as it is presented. But if people are neglecting large, significant areas of biblical truth, then it should be a great caution, scientists. I hope that helps you, Lucia. And again, bless you from Spain. Here we go. Spain, Peru, Denmark, New York City. Uh, I know Ruth has been watching from Santa Barbara, California. This is fantastic. Um, said, uh, hey, I made it. Better late than never. Wonderful. And then finally... We're going to say Isaac says, uh, where is the line drawn? This will be the last question that we take today. I've got another engagement to get to tonight. Going to spend some time with the, the Calvary Chapel in Sao Vicente, Sao Vicente, and uh, with Pastor um, Celso Nascimento and his congregation. So, oh, Joel says from Mexico as well. That's too, but let me get to Isaac's question, which I take it Isaac is there from Texas. So welcome, Isaac. He says, where is the line drawn? For when we are being tempted by our flesh, verse, the enemy trying to make us stumble. 
Is it two things working against us at the same time, or is one separate from the other? Isaac, that's a great question. And I would say sometimes it's hard to tell. Now, we do know from James. James says, and, and I can't give you chapter and verse. Isaac, you're a biblically literate man. You can look it up. But in James, it says that we are tempted when it's our own desires that lead us astray. Now, we can believe that the enemy of our souls, Satan, and his agents, so to speak, we would think of them as demonic spirits that, you know, try to entice us or whatever. We believe that Satan and his agents understand those temptations that we face, and they seek to amplify them or inflame them or entice us. So you could say that the originally fleshly impulse comes from within us, but then it is sought to be inflamed. Oftentimes, I think that temptation comes to us in concert from the world, the flesh, that is myself, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And knowing that, we just need to be on guard against all. And when we do spiritual warfare, we need to think of it against all three, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes we waste too much energy trying to figure out exactly where the temptation or the difficulty comes in. I say sometimes because sometimes it is very helpful to know that. But why not just do battle in all three realms against the world, the flesh and the devil and make our stand for godliness and against these things that tempt us. So that's just kind of my idea on that, Isaac. I hope that's helpful. Uh, Jim says that he's from Florida. Joel from South Wales. I love this. This is a great role, Carla. We've had uh, South Wales, Florida, Mexico, Peru. I'm in Brazil. Uh, we've had Spain. We've had Denmark, Santa Barbara, Texas, and wherever else that we're coming from. I'm so happy that you could join me because I know that this is going to go on Wisconsin, Brian. That's great. This is going to go on the YouTube channel that I have. Thank you to all my new subscribers. We've had a rush of hundreds of new subscribers in the last few weeks, and that makes me very happy. So thank you to the new subscribers. Thank you for those who pray for the work of Enduring Word. I so appreciate that, and I ask that you continue to pray for the work. Continue to pray for the work of the distribution and the translation of my Bible commentary as far and as wide as it can be. And, and... Uh, thank you, especially to those who support the work of Enduring Word. I'm very grateful for that. Uh, there are people who just have in their heart to donate and support the work. Listen, you guys keep it going, at least in a financial level, used by the Lord. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from God. So even those financial gifts that are given, we understand they come from God through his people, and we're grateful for that. And uh, we're grateful for those of us who could join the Sherry, yes, this is every Thursday that I can. Sometimes my travel schedule precludes me from doing it, but every Thursday that it's possible, I have these YouTube sessions live at 12 noon Pacific time. Right now, I'm in uh, Santos, Brazil. And so in Santos, Brazil right now, it is almost, it's 540 in the evening, but 12 noon Pacific time, Thursday afternoons, whenever I'm able to, we have these live YouTube chats where you can bring your questions, your comments, and I love um, responding. Cheryl, you say you finally found us. Well, great. I'm happy for that. Thank you to everybody who's joined us today. It's been a wonderful time, and I hope I can join you next Thursday 
we're hoping that it all works out for that to happen. God bless you. And uh, either this Thursday or the one following, glad you could join us together. Like these things. Uh, sign up for the notifications so you can tell when we have them. And tell other people to subscribe. We love that we're getting more and more inscribers. God bless you. And thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.